0: I grew up in Chicago, so when you when you pray in a different language and people don't understand you, they might they won't know what you're talking. So, <laughs> What a joy to be together, Amen. Woo. It There's just something about there's something about when brothers and sisters in Christ, when we love and serve each other. There's something about that that can just it can just help us step back and give us the context we need for Thanksgiving, right? There's something about that of just when we love and serve each other that helps you step back and go, oh my gosh, that is the hands and feet of the Lord blessing me. That's what I'm experiencing. So thank you guys. We love you guys. Such a cool thing. Today we are finishing out our time in Acts. Woo! I'm stoked for this. If you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts 28. We're going to be finishing out this book today. While you turn there, I'm supposed to remind you of two things. The first one is, this was already mentioned, but the, the Easter invite cards we have at the welcome table there. I know you guys know this, right? But there is something about just Easter time and Christmas time where people are just a little more open to an invitation to partake. Uh, in church and those things. So if you have someone, friends, neighbors, coworkers that you've been praying for, ministering to, sharing the gospel with, then I would encourage you to consider grabbing a couple of those and just inviting them, praying through who you might invite to come worship with you uh, this Easter season. So grab a couple of those on your way out. Second thing is this. I'm sure a lot of you haven't noticed this, so but, but I'm going to geek out with you for a second. Since Emmanuel Fellowship planted in October, uh, some of you have noticed that our pastors have basically been preaching out of whatever translation they want to preach out of. Uh, Red Tree and West County both use different translations generally. Starting next week, when we get out of Acts, we are going to unify uh, the leadership around one translation. We'll be preaching on Sundays from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. Uh, hopefully you have a copy of that. Or, you know, you should go snag one. We'll have house Bibles in the room in that translation. That's what we'll be putting up on the screens. GCs will have access to those. It's a great translation. If you want to, if you nerd out on that kind of thing, feel free to reach out to me and we can talk about why that translation and what makes it different than other ones and those things. But uh, it's a good one. I'm excited for it. It'll be cool. But um, again, you know, you can just bring whatever Bible you like best and it'll be fine. I just want to let you know which one we're going to have on the screen. So... Uh, That's that. Getting into Acts. So today we're finishing out the book of Acts, this last little bit of narrative in Acts 28. And basically, here's what we're going to experience today. What's so cool about the way Acts rounds everything out is that essentially in this narrative, we're going to get to rehash all of the main themes of the entire book. In this closing narrative, Luke is going to really brilliantly bring us back to the major thematic elements of the entire book, and then it's going to end really weirdly. It just ends very abruptly, and I think it's going to be really beneficial for us because the the ending of Acts is so abrupt that it essentially uh, teaches us that Acts isn't actually over, that the the ministry that's happening, the work God is doing uh, in his church has not ceased with the Apostle Paul, but continues on through his church today. And so I'm excited for us to sit, be reminded of all the things that this book has been teaching, pointing us to, kind of coming back to, and then really spending some time reflecting on what it means for us as followers of Christ to obey the same commission of Christ to go and partake in his ministry in the world. Sound good? Awesome. So remember, we're jumping into an existing narrative that's kind of already in motion. The last section of Acts follows Paul after his arrest in Jerusalem. Paul visited Jerusalem and was arrested and essentially charged with being like a political upriser. And it's led to this whole mess of things after several failed assassination attempts. The dude appeals to Caesar. This was a right Roman citizens had to basically ask the emperor to review their case. Uh, Paul, over a series of multiple years, gets pushed around to Judges and eventually shipped off to Rome. This couldn't go any worse as he's making his way by ship under uh, Roman uh, supervision. They end up encountering a hurricane or essentially like what amounts to a big old huge storm at sea in these shallow bow ancient Roman ships that can't really handle being in the open sea. Things go terribly. They end up lost in the Mediterranean. Paul's kind of like, prophesying over them like, look, God's got us, we're good. But eventually they end up shipwrecking, running the ship aground and barely surviving by the skin of their teeth, landing at the island of Malta on the southmost part of Italy. And that was our text last week. As they make their way there, Paul gets to actually minister to the people on the island. It's this really beautiful scene. And we're picking up with Paul as a prisoner under Roman supervision, having just been shipwrecked, and now kind of waiting out the winter on the island of Malta. So, Acts 28, we're picking up in verse 11, and it says this, "'After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead, putting it at Syracuse, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans.'" And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing amongst themselves, they departed after Paul made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they are closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen." He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord for us today. Pray with me. Father God, we ask this morning, as we take a few minutes to sit in your word, Lord, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be our discipler. Speak to us today, Lord, as we, as we just read this text. May, may what was said not be true of us, Lord. May we actually have open ears and open eyes and tender hearts to hear from you today, Lord. May we not be those whose calloused hearts actually keep us from receiving your gospel afresh. Lord, for those of us in this space who, through our sin, through what's been done to us, through the pains of this world, we actually have grown calluses over our hearts that numb us. To the power and truth and presence of your gospel. Holy Spirit, I ask today you would peel those away. You would speak to us afresh, that we would be reminded once again of how, how good you are, how kind you are, how loving you are, how wonderful your kingdom is. Lord, let us leave today having heard from you what our hearts need. We love you, Jesus. We believe you, we trust you. So we pray these things in your name. Amen. So, Here's what I'd like to do with this. I'm going to walk us back through this narrative, hopefully kind of plug in some of the historical cultural pieces, kind of help us really imagine the story here. And as we go along, I'm going to try and bring us back to some of the major themes of the book that Luke is going to remind us of. He's going to remind us that the gospel is not actually obvious to everyone, which is a, a weird theme, but it's a teaching that acts comes back too often. We're going to see how the kingdom of God is actually a family, that, that, that because of Christ, we're not called to be subjects of God, but, but children of God, brothers and sisters who love and serve one another, who who are the hands and feet of Christ to one another. We're going to see how the, the kingdom of God actually gives a better context, the, the, the kind of eternal context that lets us see our present sufferings in light of eternity. And ultimately, we're going to be reminded that the commission of Christ to his followers to go and bear witness did not cease 2,000 years ago, but that commission exists for all believers, even us, even here, even today, to bear witness to who Christ is and what he has done in our lives. I think it'll be good for us today. So let's jump into it. Barb, can you put that map up for me? Cool. So this is the same map Jim used a couple weeks ago. Uh, this is kind of shows us Paul's journey from Jerusalem, kind of in the bottom right section there, all the way up to Rome in that top left section there. Our text today picks up on the far left piece of the map on the island of Malta. And what essentially happens in all of Paul's journeys recorded in Acts the very last part of the journey, you kind of get this like travel log, like just real quick summary of like the last legs of the trip. I don't know if that was just like by the end of it, Luke was really bored and he's like, come on, let's get there. But, but that's how, like how it goes each time is like it spends time really fishing out the, the journey and then there comes a point where they're like, and Paul went here, 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 and then he arrived. Uh, and, and that's kind of the section we're at where it just moves us through the last little bit. So remember, they got lost at sea, out in the open ocean, in a ship that wasn't designed to be out in the open ocean. By God's grace, they survived. They ran the ship aground, ended up at this island of Malta, and they spent three months there with Paul actually doing really effective ministry. Now, this three-month journey stay at Malta wasn't just out of the goodness of the Roman centurion's heart. This was the reality that they were so far into the bad season that they couldn't leave. They were stuck. They had to winter. Remember, they had actually left when it was already too late to leave on a journey, but they had made it that far, barely survived. And at that point, there's no ship captains willing to go out. The, The sea is simply too dangerous. But three months later they find a ship that's willing to leave. Now, what's interesting about this is that the winter isn't actually over at this point. 3 months after they shipwrecked was still on the tail end of the time when no one was supposed to be out sailing. But if you recall, the way Rome worked at this time, the city of Rome had was too big, had too great a population to actually sustain itself with its own agriculture. It was dependent on its colonies, on its subjects, to provide food for the capital. And so there was a necessity for grain to constantly be brought to Rome all year long. To get around the fact that it wasn't safe to sail in the winter, what Rome basically did is just said, hey, we'll pay you massively more for the grain if you bring it in the off season, when I say massively more, I mean eight nine ten times the market price to get captains to risk their lives to bring grain to rome we 're told that they introduced to another ship a ship of Alexandria. This is another grain ship the, Alexandria was the main port that brought grain out of. Palestine toward Rome. And so they were on one grain ship, they got lost at sea and sunk, and now they're hiring another grain ship to make their way to Rome proper. This second grain ship, we're told, has on the mast the twin gods. This is the Gemini twins in the Roman pantheon who were considered kind of like protective gods of seafaring folk. They, they helped with you know, navigation and they helped calm storms. This was the kind of masthead, if you were a devout Roman religious person, it would make sense to, to jump on this boat at this time of year, right? Because they're taking another massive gamble by sailing this early. I think there's just some amazing irony here, right? Like these people are alive because of God's grace, right? Like Paul, about as bluntly as he could, was like, hey, just so you know, this is going to be a disaster, but God's going to protect us, right? Like he's been proclaiming that to these guys this whole time. But when time rolls around to get on another ship, the, the, the Roman centurion's like, hey, let's pick that lucky one with the Gemini guys on it, right? But this is, and we'll see this a couple times in this text, this is a reminder of one of the biggest themes in Acts, which is simply the gospel is not obvious to those who can't see it. I know that's like a a weird thing to say, but it's a really important thing to say. The gospel isn't obvious to those who can't see it. This is a principle, a theme we've seen in Acts over and over, but this is a biblical idea. Guys, if the Holy Spirit hasn't awakened your heart to engage the gospel, it doesn't make sense. Scripture talks about this, right? It's, it's foolishness to Greeks. It's, it's, it's offensive to Jews, right? Like, the gospel doesn't immediately make sense. Now, if you're in Christ, you're like, how could, how could it not make sense? I mean, look at it. It's wonderful. Because your heart has been awakened to it, right? Your eyes are open. Your ears are open. But to those who are not there, it just isn't that obvious. And we're going to camp on that for a couple minutes once Paul makes his way to Rome proper. But stick with me on this. To Puteoli, and and here... They're on, they're on land basically the rest of the journey. There is a road that goes directly from this port city to the city of Rome. It's about 125 miles. Imagine like where we're sitting to the campus of Mizzou in Columbia. About that same distance they're going to make on foot. So they've, they've made their way here. And I love this piece. As soon as they make their way to the port city, they find some brothers and sisters in Christ. And the way the story tells us here is that these Christians, this local church in this port city, took in Paul and his companions. Now, they didn't just, by the way, and we kind of missed this a little bit in the English, but it seems as though they didn't just take in Paul and his companions, but they took in Paul and his companions and his shipmates and his Roman soldiers and his fellow prisoners. There's something about just the church That when they meet Paul, they just express themselves in this this radical hospitality that just says, oh gosh, all of you, come here, we'll make sure you have beds to sleep on and couches to crash on and food to eat. Why don't you stay a whole week and prepare yourselves? Don't don't make that journey too quickly. I love that. It's this beautiful image of how the church responds to an immediate need. And it actually is more than that, right? Because over the seven days it takes for this Roman centurion to get the supplies together to get his prisoners to Rome, they actually send word ahead to the churches in Rome that Paul is coming. So as they make their way up the road, when they get to the southernmost suburbs of Rome, there's brothers and sisters waiting to meet them. This, this, these two places it mentions, the three taverns, the other one. These are suburbs of Rome, and there are Christians waiting for Paul there. And I love this piece. He, he essentially gets an escort, right, of local native believers to kind of lead them into the city and get them established and set up. And look, look what it says about how this affected Paul. The text says, he thanked God and took courage. This idea here is one of the other major important themes of Acts. It's that the kingdom of God is a family. That Christ is not subjugating people under him as subjects, but he is adopting unto himself children. That we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And because of that, the bond made between believers in Christ bonds us together as family. It's why the believers called each other brother and sister because they cared for one another like family. The kind of care that means when Paul shows up as a prisoner with a group of soldiers and fellow prisoners and sailors and ruffians, the church says, oh, come crash here, we'll take care of you guys. That that when Paul shows up in Rome, the church meets him to escort him into the city. And what, what we see here is that they don't just meet him and escort him in. They actually care for his needs. They, they find him a place to stay. And Paul has very obviously been impactful on his Roman supervisor because what was normative in this day while someone was waiting for their day in court is that they would essentially live in the barracks with the soldiers, with two guards on them 24-7. But Paul is allowed to live under house arrest. And even, by the way, when house arrest happened, some prisoners were given that honor. Usually, essentially, they were given a one-room apartment in a big, huge tenement complex, and they still had two soldiers on them 24-7. But Paul is allowed to live in a private residence, big enough to host large groups in some kind of, like, atrium, right? And beyond that, he's only guarded by one soldier. It's an unheard-of level of honor which speaks to Paul's relationship with his captors, but it also speaks to the generosity of the church. They make space for Paul. They provide for him, they care for him. It says that he was there, right, under his, under his own funds, right? What it means by that is that Rome wasn't paying for his food. But Paul is unable to work. He's under house arrest. What actually is happening here is that the church, out of its benevolence fund, is caring for Paul's physical needs, paying his rent, bringing him food. And by the way, it wasn't just these local churches in Rome that did this. The churches worldwide sent in benevolence funds to care for Paul. Go read Philippians. It's literally the thank you letter he wrote to the church at Philippi for sending him money while he was in prison. It's actually, the first chapter of Philippians gives you some really interesting looks into Paul's heart during this time. Like, there's this amazing part, right? Like, like Paul is literally, wrist to wrist, chained to a Roman soldier 24-7, right? And it would have been two, but Paul's given the honor of just having one. And when he writes to Philippi to, to thank them for their gift, what he says is, oh, I've been preaching to these guys. (laughs) They're chained to me. They can't get anywhere. So I've just been ministering to these guys. And now the entire stinking guard has heard the gospel. There's something about Paul's attitude which is just beautiful to me. But But it speaks to this truth all the provision here, all the care here, all the way it encourages and builds up Paul, it speaks to the truth that Acts has been saying, by the way, all the way like back to chapters 2, 3, 4, that the church of God is the family of God. We care for one another. We represent Christ. We're the hands and feet of Christ. To one another in our love, and our care, and our hospitality, and our time, and our relationship. And by the way, as I share that, I know that some of you guys, like, you just already know that. You already know that in the family of Christ, there is safety and understanding and fellowship. That when this present life is hard and painful, when we are misunderstood or misrepresented, when we suffer for the sake of the kingdom, it is the church brothers and sisters of Christ who show up and carry our burdens and pick us up and get us back on our feet. Just like these brothers and sisters who gave hospitality to Paul and a bunch of wrecked Roman prison ship sailors. Just like these dudes, these brothers and sisters who showed up and escorted Paul and gave him a place to stay. Many of you know this on a deep gut level because you've experienced this in your own life. You've had times where you were just beaten down, where things were not going well, and the church showed up, and the church represented Christ in tangible, physical ways, helped keep you on your feet, helped give you encouragement, and give you hope, and brought you back to thanksgiving. Because this reality was true for the church in Acts. We read about it over and over and over. But beloved, it is true for the church in West County, St. Louis, Missouri, in 2022. It's just as true. Jesus has made us a new family in his kingdom, amen? So at this point, Paul is at Rome. He's waiting for his day in court. And the text kind of tells us, like gives us two years of that, right? Like he's hanging out. He waits two years. When he's been there just a couple days, he calls for the Jewish leaders to come and meet with him. And they do. They come and they sit with him, and there's kind of this interesting exchange where where over over the course of this exchange, we're reminded of Paul's overall legal journey, but also the way Paul engaged his Jewish brothers and sisters. So the first piece is he basically says, "Hey guys, just so you know, I don't know if you've heard anything bad about me, but but I'm not I'm not here to do anything bad. Like I actually love our people. I love God. I love the Word. Like this this whole thing is an unjust mess. Like I don't I'm I'm not bringing accusations against our people. Like I had to appeal to Caesar because this whole thing was so messed up, but I'm not here to do anything bad. I'm here because of my love for our God. And what's interesting is their response, where they basically say." Amen, we have no idea who you are. We haven't heard anything about you. Uh, Which is interesting, because if we think back over Paul's journeys over the last several decades, you know, some of the Jewish leaders in Asia Minor and what we call Turkey disliked him so much, they followed him for hundreds of miles to, to Greece and back to Jerusalem just to get people to try and kill him, right? And yet when he's finally arrested and sent to Rome, no one actually sends any case papers against him. It's very strange. You think, well, maybe he just arrived ahead of them. Listen, this boy was shipwrecked and stuck on an island. The letter would have gotten there first, right? They didn't send it. They didn't send any information. And these Jewish leaders go, yeah, we haven't heard anything about you, man. But I mean, we have heard about Christianity. We've heard a lot of bad stuff. So we'd love to hear you teach on that. We know you're an authority on that. We wanna hear what's up with that. What's interesting about this is that church history tells us that these orders, these accusations, these case papers never arrived. That some four or so years later, Paul's case was eventually just dropped because his accusers never filed the proper paperwork uh, to to get him tried, which is buck wild to think about, but it's actually really natural. It's really natural because the, the reality is the leaders of the Jews in Jerusalem probably knew they didn't have any chance of actually beating Paul in court. He's a Roman citizen, and most of them weren't. Most of them were Roman subjects. And so if they show up to the Roman emperor as subjects with accusations against the citizen, and it's a he said, she said situation, the citizen will win. (laughs) That's just how it goes. Beyond that, they would have been dependent on the Roman Jewish leaders to really represent the case for them. And the reality is, these Jewish leaders probably wouldn't have been willing to do so. At this point in time in history, there's a lot of Jews living in Rome, twenty to 30,000, and their position socially is very precarious. They've been kicked out of the city and brought back into the city. They've been persecuted. They've had a rough go, and they wouldn't be too quick to make a big fuss and appear before the emperor in court. They were kind of trying to fly under the radar at this point in history. So it actually makes a lot of sense that the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem were kind of like, eh, he'll be there a long time, and just moved on. But... These leaders here do want to hear from him. They want to hear his argument. And so we get this picture again. You know, the next day, a bunch of people show up in this space. And we get this beautiful summary of how Paul has preached to the Jewish people throughout all of Acts. He argues and reasons from the Older Testament, from the law of Moses, from the prophets, that Christ is the Messiah they've been waiting for, right? And and the response that we see here is typical of the response that we've seen throughout all of Acts. Like, Paul gives his normal theological defense, the one we've seen over and over, and essentially, some people get it. The lights click, the the word comes together, and they believe. But most of them don't. Most of them just kind of go, dude, you're nuts. This is not a thing. And it ends with Paul giving this reference to Isaiah 6. Did you catch this? Where, where he quotes Isaiah about this, you have eyes but don't see, you have ears but don't hear. You know, if your hearts are so, so calloused, you can't hear the word of God. If you did, if you did see and you did hear and your hearts were tender, God would forgive you, but you aren't, so you don't. Which is a great way of ending a conversation, Right? But it's interesting that Paul's grabbing a hold of this text. This is one of the most famous chunks of Isaiah. It's the one, if you've been in church, that you've probably heard preached at some point. Isaiah 6 is the famous vision where Isaiah sees God in the Holy of Holies and receives his commissioning as a prophet, right? This is the famous one where you know, in, the, in the year King Uzziah died, I was taken up and he, and he sees the presence of God and the Shekinah glory. And, oh, I'm a man of unclean lips. And they you know, burn his mouth with a coal. And God says, who, who will go in my name to proclaim? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Like, that's this text. And immediately after Isaiah says, here am I, send me, God's response to him is, okay, Isaiah, I'm sending you, but just so you know, it won't work. This isn't going to go well. And that's the quote we get here. He says, you will go and you will proclaim my message and they will see you and they will hear you, but they won't see you and they won't hear you because their hearts are so callous, so callous that the words of the Lord will bounce off of them and it will just have no effect. If their hearts were tender, they could hear, but they're not, so they won't. In this this prophecy from God to Isaiah about his ministry ends with this beautiful piece where he basically says, I'm sending you to do this work and it won't work. Pretty much everyone will reject you and not believe you. But some will hear the word. Some will hear and believe. A little bit. Some will hear. And that's all I actually want from you. Paul is taking this prophetic mantle, applying this to his own ministry, looking at these Jewish leaders and saying, look, man, this is not my first rodeo. I get it. Your hearts are super callous. It could not be any clearer. But the reality is the gospel isn't obvious to those who don't see it. It isn't. It couldn't be clearer. That Christ is who he says he is, that the whole word is pointing to him, that the whole of the law, the whole of the prophets is pointing to Christ the Messiah. But if you haven't had your heart open to that, it just won't be obvious. And Paul ends that by going, Go ahead and leave. Your hearts are obviously callous, but the Gentiles are ready for this message and they will hear it. Super intense, right? But this has been the flow of Acts this entire time. That God's word goes out and many reject it, but some do not. Some have their hearts open. Some see the truth of who God is and his word. And they find repentance and life and salvation. And they find the hope of God and his word proclaimed to them. And then the text ends in just this amazing way. He he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And then it's just over. It's such a strange ending. It's such a strange ending because it really isn't an ending, right? Like Luke's sitting there recording it and he kind of makes his way up to the present moment and he's like, well, okay, the end. I've made this reference before already once and so I pre-apologize, but many any of you have seen... Mel Brooks' Spaceballs when they rent the video of the movie they're in and then fast forward and get to the present moment and they're seeing themselves, right? Like they've just, Luke is, some of you are like, what the heck is he talking about? The Mel Brooks people, the real ones, you guys know. But they, they, Luke catches up, right? And he's just sitting there with Paul in his house arrest, like, well, I guess I'm done writing this thing. Like, yeah, cool. And they send it off It's such a strange ending, but I think God has sovereignly given us this ending. And I'm going to land there, so hold that in your back pocket. But first, I want to talk about this description Luke gives of Paul. It says he's, he's proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's a strange description to me, because half of it makes sense and half of it doesn't. I get the boldness piece, right? Paul is a dude who has no problem causing problems, right? This is the dude who walked into the Sanhedrin and was like... This is the gospel, mic drop, boom. This is the guy who wrote to Philippi and was like, I've been preaching to all the prison guards and they can't do anything about it because they're chained to me, it's amazing. Like, this is the guy who like, marched into Jerusalem proclaiming that like, this dude is the guy who got stoned to death and miraculously brought back to life and walked back in the town and like, kept going, right? Like, Paul doesn't have a problem with boldness and we see that. But to describe him as ministering without hindrance that one's a little weird to me because from the outside looking in, Paul seems pretty hindered at this point, right? Like he's literally arrested. <laughs> he's literally under house arrest. He's literally helpless to provide for his own needs, to work a job. He can't leave the building he's living in. He doesn't have a moment, a second of the day where there's not an armed Roman guard chained to his hand, right? Right? I would look at that and go, yeah, boldness, I get it. Unhindered, that doesn't make much sense to me. But the reality is, the reality is that the truth of the gospel is so powerful, and Paul is so given over to the work of the kingdom, that his present physical sufferings, his present physical difficulties, don't actually hinder him. This is one of the themes Acts has brought us back to over and over and over, which is that the gospel of Jesus gives us eternal perspective. It puts our present life, our present experience, our present circumstances within the context of eternity. And it's so grand, and the gospel of Jesus is so good that present circumstances don't actually hinder its working or the followers of Christ's participation in it. So the reality is, even though Paul is chained, Paul is imprisoned, Paul is stuck, Paul is helpless, Paul is totally free in Christ. He really is unhindered. And there's this beautiful contrast here between, once again, this proclamation that the Jewish religious leaders' hearts are callous, that they are, they're, they're, they've built up such scar tissue around their hearts that when the gospel is proclaimed, it does nothing to them. They're numb to the power of the proclamation of the gospel in their life. There's this contrast between the callous hearts of the Jewish leaders and the unhindered heart of Paul who even though they are free and he's in prison, they're the ones who are hindered and he is the one who is unhindered. It's beautiful. If you know me, you know I like the painter Rembrandt. He's one of the Dutch masters. He, he did a ton of portraits of biblical stories and biblical scenes. I, I actually have this like, book of Rembrandt's paintings and I'll just like sit and flip through it when I'm sermon prepping. He did three portraits of Paul from this season of his life when he was in house arrest awaiting his trial, and I love them. I'm going to put my favorite one up here. It's called Paul at His Writing Desk. You can barely see it because all his paintings are really dark and broody, but <laughs> he does a lot with darkness and light. But I love, I love the way Rembrandt paints Paul's house arrest. You can look up. There's three different portraits like this. I love it because if Rembrandt didn't tell you in the title that this was Paul in prison, you'd have no idea. He just looks like an old guy sitting at his desk, Right? But the reason is, and I love this, I think Rembrandt had clear eyes to see what was going on in this text. You see, he refused to paint Paul in shackles. He didn't paint Paul in shackles, even though he would have been shackled 24-7. Paul paints him with no restraints and always paints him with a pen in his hand and a sword within arm's reach. Now, if there's two things Roman prisoners didn't receive, It was freedom from their shackles and armaments, right? Like this is not the way a Roman prisoner would have lived. But Rembrandt paints Paul this way because I think he understands the unhindered nature of Paul's heart in this moment, this time in his ministry. So even though Paul literally is physically shackled, even though Paul literally is stuck in a house and his ministry has been reduced to hosting people and writing letters, Paul is free in Christ and is fully participating in the work of the kingdom of God advancing on earth. Paul is not a prisoner in a house. Paul is sword in hand proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, seeing the kingdom advance here on earth. And so he's painted with a pen and with a sword next to him. I love it. Such a beautiful image that I think really gets us at what this text is pointing to. And by the way, it would be so easy to end right there, which is kind of this little morality tale, right, of like, oh, think about your own hearts. Like, are you, are you callous like the Jewish leaders? Are you unhindered like Paul? And by the way, like, you would be remiss to engage this text and not consider that, to sit and think through your own life and what calluses you have allowed to build up on your own heart, what, what sins you've allowed to go unchecked, what wounds and broken relationships you've ignored and not sought gospel freedom and peace, and what, what things you've allowed to grow and calcify around your heart so that when you hear the gospel, it doesn't actually awaken joy and life and freedom in you. Like, you would be good for you to actually consider that, to actually reflect on that. Is your heart unhindered like Paul's? But it would be dangerous for you to read this text and only consider this ethical element. Am I more like Paul or am I more like the religious leaders? Because the reality is this text, much like the book of Acts, is not actually about Paul. Paul is a side character in Acts. And I know some of you are like, I'm pretty sure we've spent two-thirds of this book reading about Paul. Yeah. Yeah, he's a side character. This is not the Acts of Paul or the Acts of Peter. This is not a story about them. Acts is a story about the God of the universe engaging in human history and saving his children. Acts is a story about God entering into human history and moving in power through his church to advance his kingdom, to win unto himself sons and daughters, to to advance and build up his kingdom in the midst of the broken and sinful world. And yes, he used men like Peter and men like Paul, but he used the whole church to do that because it wasn't their work, it was the work of his person, his spirit in the world. And so if we just engage this text as this morality kind of contrast, by the way, you should do that. But if we just do that, we miss what this text and what the book of Acts has for us. And I'm going to end us by coming back to the ending of Acts. I love the way it ends because it doesn't. It just stops. Luke just caught up to the present moment. But that's not the end of the book of Acts. Because the book of Acts is the story of the God of the universe invading the world and saving his children and building his kingdom and growing his family and growing his church through his accomplished work on the cross on our behalf. And that work didn't end when Paul made his way to Rome. That work didn't begin when Paul started his ministry. Paul is a side character in the story of God advancing his gospel, moving his kingdom forward. Because here's what happened. I love this about Acts. This so in the very beginning. We're going to end this where we started it, right? In the very beginning of Acts, before Jesus ascends into heaven, he, he meets with his followers one last time, the 120, and he says to this to them, this is Acts 1.8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He says you will bear witness. Not you will go and be excellent theologians, you will go and be excellent public speakers. No, no, you will bear witness. You will simply report what you have seen and experienced of who Christ is and what he has accomplished. And you know what's amazing? That 120 people did that. They bore witness to who Christ was. And most of the people ignored it because their hearts were callous. But some of them heard it. Some of them had their hearts opened by God and they met Christ and experienced salvation and righteousness. And that same commission from Christ was handed to them and they went and bore witness about what they had seen and experienced in Christ. And you know what's amazing, church? Most of the people didn't hear it, but some did. Some had their hearts opened by Jesus and they, they met Christ in repentance and salvation and experienced the, the beauty of forgiveness. And they received the same commission from Christ to go and bear witness about what they had seen and what they had heard. And you know what's amazing, church? They did they went and they bore witness about what they had seen and heard and most rejected it, but some received it and met Christ in repentance and salvation and received the same commission from Christ and so on and so on and so on through hundreds of generations of faith, through thousands of years until some point in the 20th or 21st century when a follower of Christ who'd received that commission came and proclaimed the gospel to you. And although many had rejected it, your heart was opened. And you met Christ in repentance and salvation. And You experienced what it means to have your sinfulness exchanged for the perfect righteousness of Christ. And you received intimacy and relationship with God. And had your eternity bought and secured so that you might be with him forever. Amen. But beloved, you received the same commission they received. The same commission that Christ gave to the 120 that were given to the next generation, that was given to the next generation, that was given to the next generation. The church fathers called this the rule of faith that you would take the true gospel that Christ handed it down and you would protect it and preserve it and not change a thing and you would boldly proclaim it to those who come after you so that it might be preserved and passed on from generation to generation, beloved. God moved supernaturally human history for the last 2,000 years to preserve that gospel and bring it from the Mount Sinai in Acts chapter one, not Mount Sinai, bring it from the mountain in Acts chapter one to you here and now. Beloved, you have the same commission. God is still moving in history. God is still advancing his kingdom. He's still calling his sons and daughters unto him. And you have been included in that family. And the same commission is on you. Because Acts is not over because you are living the same story that they were living. Yes, it looks different. Yes, we're not in the first century. We're not in Rome. We're, we're here in 2022 in, in suburban America, right? Like it's, it's a different time, a different place, a different context, but it is the same God and the same gospel and beloved. It is the same commission. You are the church, which means you are the witnesses, which means we get, we get to join with Christ in his work, to seek and save the lost. Beloved, Whew. let's get out of here and get on mission. Amen. Amen? I'm going to do this. Chris, if you want to come up, we're going to sing a closing song and take communion as we do. And I want to encourage you guys as this song is sung, I want to encourage you to take a few minutes to engage with what Christ has been saying to you in this. I mean, I mean, Honestly, right? Like we do need to take a minute and reflect on how callous or open or tender our hearts are. Does the proclamation of the gospel awaken you? Are you numb to it? Do you feel like you've checked that box and you understand that one, and you're able to kind of zone out when we talk about that part? And do, do some work on that. Ask God what calluses have grown on your heart that need to be stripped away, that you might be unhindered. But beyond that, church. I would ask you as this song is sung, consider with thanksgiving the gift you have received, the graciousness, the the generosity of God to preserve his kingdom, to preserve his gospel for 2,000 years from, from Acts chapter 1 all the way to your life right here and right now. The amazing gift that he has called you his own has invited you into his work. And consider, church, what it means to say yes to Jesus here today. Sit, pray, be with Christ, let the song be sung over you, and then we'll end our time with